Amen. So um, we most recently uh, finished with um, uh, Jesus dealing with uh, the demon-possessed man, the, the Gadarean uh, region, uh, the area where uh, Reuben Gad, half the tribe of Manasseh, had settled east of the Jordan. And uh, we talked about the history with their being captured by the Syrians and Syrians worshiping pigs and uh, you know the Jews coming back and bringing that uh, you know accompaniment of pigs with them and demon possessed men and they reject Jesus uh, the same way that uh, the demon possessed man initially did you know what do I have to do with you go away and uh, you know he casts out demons they all die uh, you know the pigs all die and then the the crowd comes and says you know go away same thing that the demon possessed man was saying he wants to go with Jesus. Uh, Jesus says, I need you to stay here. I'm paraphrasing everything. Uh, you stay here and share what the Lord has done with you. And I made mention to the fact that when, you know, on this occasion in Decapolis, uh, a region of 10 cities, very little fruit, uh, next to no response and a rejection uh, communally. Uh, when he returns, great numbers come and are converted. Uh, I, I suspect it's because of the testimony of the demon-possessed man and the work that Jesus performed in his life. So consider, uh, you know, just again, being faithful to share your testimony. If you think, uh, you know, well, I don't have, you know, some wild, extravagant criminal background. <laughs> you know, uh, one of my dear friends um, was attending college, uh, you know, squared away student, never been into any of that raucous stuff at all, got invited to a campus crusade Bible study. You know, read a tract and went, wow, I'm a sinner, need Christ, gave his life to the Lord. You know, and he's like, you know, compared to your testimony, yes, yeah. I'm, I'm saying that's brilliant. That's, I mean, that's intelligent to, to simply examine your your condition and say, oh, this is what I need. And, and to surrender your life. You know, I had to be, you know, beaten <laughs> by my own circumstances, the school of hard knocks, you know failed with honors, you know, sort of uh, thing in order to come to Christ. You know, whatever your testimony is, share it. You know, share what the Lord has done, you know, with you, for you, in you. And um, then let the Lord use that however he may and, uh, you know, minister to people. So now we move into this, uh, you know, young girl restored to life and the woman who is healed in Mark uh, chapter Five, looking at verse 21, it says, Now when Jesus had crossed over again, so they were on the eastern side, and they've come back uh, over uh, to the western side of Jordan and the Galilee, by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him and was by the sea. Behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came uh, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet. Now, ruler of the synagogue, um, uh, I'm not trying to diminish that role at all, but just for accuracy's sake, we shouldn't think of someone who, you know, is like really incredible teacher and a great uh, orator and very authoritative. You're, I, it's a custodial sort of role. Uh, they they keep the keys, they open up the doors. They, uh, you know, maybe set out the scroll, put it right to the proper marking where they left off reading uh, last time, last Sabbath when they were together, um, you know, make sure, you know, the coffee's brewed, you know, and that sort of thing. This is what they're doing. Uh, so, so when we read the ruler of the synagogue, I mean, he certainly has a tremendous amount of authority over the synagogue, but he's not the bigwig. Okay, he's he's a man who's who's there attentive to uh, you know the needs of the people and their desire to worship the Lord and be together. And uh, Jairus comes, falls at his feet, begged him earnestly, saying, "My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live." So Jesus went with him. And great multitudes followed him and thronged him. So uh, the term "throng" to start with that is um, there. There is a uh, within definition there is the sense of suffocation. It's 
Um, you know, I've been to some big venues, big concerts, different things, you know, many years ago. And, you know, when there's 10,000 people behind you pressing forward and you literally can't breathe, um, you know, I, there were a couple of occasions, uh, you know, before I was walking with the Lord at, you know, heathen rock concerts where we were peeling people up out of the crowd and handing them limp passed out over the crowd uh, to security because, you know, young girls, you know, pressed like that to the point where they can't get a full breath, uh, you know, hypoxia sort of a situation. That, that is what's being said here. I have never seen any um, video representation by Hollywood or television or otherwise that depicts accurately what Jesus was experiencing in his ministry for a huge portion of his ministry. People press, imagine someone that could heal any ailment who wasn't a charlatan, right? I mean, we, we, we talked about the fact that previously it talked about those who were halt and those who were maimed. The, the term is literally an amputee being healed you mean you show up on crutches one leg leave no crutches two legs that jesus was performing these miracles you know people who had leprosy uh who were in the full throes of the decay of their their flesh and so when the scriptures is and jesus made them whole right it, it literally is saying that you know, fingers, noses, ears were restored to whole. That's going to spread. People, word is going to get out. You don't need the internet. When, when you've got power like that, that is going to cause the people to press upon you. You know, you, you, people were traveling thousands of miles. They hear and they're gone. They're on their way to go see Jesus. You know, imagine if you're you know just busy in life and you keep hearing all these stories of Jesus and healing and restoration and life and all, and then you, he's in town. You know, I mean, you're going to see him about your hangnail. You know, whether you've got some major ailment or something minor, you're going to go get Aunt Melva and take her down there for the you know her cataracts or or whatever. And this is what's going on, thronged by the people. Uh, you know, they're coming. To hear uh, what Jesus has to say and what it is that he's uh, going to do. Now consider within this the desperation of Jairus. This statement of you know his little daughter. It's it's the sense of dearness. That little you just I mean you know children will melt your heart. If not, then you know you're probably some callous creep. But um, you know. It, a little girl, you know, I, uh, I'll never forget years ago, Annie Chalmers uh, was here. Just the brightest little eyes and, you know, loved to sing and, you know, blonde little ringlets. And, uh, you know, she come up and ask you anything and you're just like, yes, you know, it doesn't matter. Here are my car keys. You know, you just, what we want to give to her. And, uh, you know, I said to her mom, you know, as she was, she was asking me for gum you know, come up and asking me for gum. And uh, I said to her mom, wow, I would have a really hard time saying no to that face. And her mom said, oh, you get used to it. You know, so it, uh, but, but the preciousness, okay, this is his daughter. And this guy, the, you, you got to hear the cracked voice. You got to see the tears. You got to understand the desperation of a father whose little girl is parent. He knows... He's been through the not feeling good, sick, we're in trouble, my daughter's dying. And he's come to Jesus with a desperation in his voice that, you know, the daughter, you know, the, the father of a precious daughter. I, I look at each one of my girls and just, I don't care how old they are, you know, Christians, you know, uh, almost 30 and, you know, you, you just, I, I see the little girl, you know, and, and. It just it tears at your heart. You know, I see them suffering today. Minor things we all went through, just being parents and, you know, paying bills and working jobs, and you want to rescue them. 
You know, you want your heart is just you're so in love with these people. And this is what's going on. This man comes and he is desperate to have Jesus pay attention to the impending death of his daughter. So the people throng him and we kind of pause and switch to verse 25. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. And you need to make the parallels. The little girl's 12. And this woman has had the flow of blood. She's had her menstrual cycle nonstop 12 years. Okay. So you you immediately get a lot of self-application, right? What is your circumstance? What is your need? You know, was innocence lost? You know, and you're in a place in life where you just, you're brokenhearted over, you know, what could have been, should have been, or, you know, has it been a life of torment? You know, is that your circumstance? It's just been, you know, one thing after another, nonstop, and, you know, the doctor's bad news, and the marital crisis, and the financial strain, and you just, like, you know, decades have passed and you're literally in the place saying, like, wh- like, where does it end? You know, you jump on people that say, well, you know, it couldn't get any worse. And you're like, you know, shush, you know, it can. I've seen it. You know, I, I know what this this woman has been through this in both of these settings. I, the Holy Spirit was faithful to orchestrate these to come at the same time. So that we get that picture of what, you know, it doesn't matter what your issue is, right? We do that sometimes. We look at somebody, uh, you know, in their situation and they say, well, yeah, sure. I mean, God works in that type of crisis, but mine's a totally different thing. And it's just not true. What, what is your need? Jesus Christ is the answer for that need. He, he, he will be there. He will answer yeah we we say that mistakenly we don't even realize we'll say things like well all we can do now is pray well that should that's not the that's not the spare tire folks you know what i'm saying that's not the fire escape that's where it should all begin every that's the only ingredient that needs to go into every recipe is is the relationship with the lord that's not well oh well you know let's throw the prayer in (laughs) You know, let's let yeah, okay, you're right. You know, there's always Jesus. You know, that's that's not where we're at with this thing. It, what is your circumstance? Jesus has application. See, she's had this malady for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. Any of us, you don't have to show hands. <laughs> have any of us suffered those things? Suffered at the hands of the physicians, right? Not Not just. You know, we, we get the implication and certain, uh, you know, scholars lay it out like, you know, she'd spent a tremendous amount of money. Yeah, right. But also, like, have any of us had treatments that did bad things? You know, you had problems with? Right? I know people in this fellowship, you know, that, that are in the midst of dealing with the terrible things that have occurred I'm not anti-medicine, anti any of that stuff. I'm pro those things, but I also know, right? They're they're just practicing. We all make that joke, right? They're just practicing. They're not God. They they have their abilities, and oh God bless them, man. They're wonderful people, and so very often uh, they're some of the most compassionate people you'll ever meet. Very often, because I mean they have a heart to heal and help and and be there for people, but you know. Compared to what Jesus can do, it, it falls so short. Jesus has this completeness. She suffered. Uh, the scholars have made long lists of her malady and the known treatments of the day. There are easily more than 70 very extensive treatments that were used for this particular malady. And none of them were effective, and none of them were cheap, and none of them, you know, was something that you could place your trust in. Uh, Because what's going on is beyond their capabilities. She suffered at the hands of many physicians. So she had spent all that she had 
and was no better, but rather grew worse. Church history, we don't know how accurate this is, could be just completely legend, tells us that this woman was known as a believer after this occasion. She became a follower of Jesus Christ, and she actually had a figurine statue made of this interaction with Jesus made where she was at Jesus' feet worshiping him. And there were uh, church leaders in, in the first century that gave testimony to the fact that they had been in her home and seen that. So, you know, that we need to take to light that this is, if nothing else, whether any of that's real, if nothing else, this is a real occasion in history that took place. So uh, she's worse off, right? Rather than getting better, she grew worse. And many of the practices that were done really taxed her reproductive system. And the, the ways and the methods that they had, you know, the, you know, well, you've done this and you've done that. Let's get more aggressive. Let's do more severe things. And, uh, you know, the, the body's already, right? I mean, We've probably got an iron, you know, I'm not trying to diminish the miracle at all, but we probably got some kind of iron issue and we probably got some kind of platelet issue. And we probably, you know, there's a number of, you know, uh, blood class circumstances that are at stake here. Reproductive elements. Who, this could be full-blown cancer uh, for all that we know. She's had this issuance of blood for 12 years, suffering tremendously. Their ancient world progresses, making her worse off. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I will be made well. Uh, parallel gospels tell us that she said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment. Okay, now here's the deal. Deuteronomy, you'll recall, the Lord told the nation of Israel that they were to embroider blue into the hem of their robe and put four tassels on the corners of their robes. And that blue and the blue tassels was somehow to be signifying of their relationship with God, that, that their garments would have that distinguishing feature you see an israeli uh, in the ancient world you could quickly go you know and we do that right you see certain cultures especially you know you know you could tell somebody that's from a muslim country you know if they're wearing a burqa you know this is probably not someone that's been born in america you know probably not more and more things are changing but you the dress the custom you know, uh, we traveled in Europe a little bit doing uh, missions trips, and, you know, they dress different in Iceland uh, than they do in America. They dress different in, uh, you know, Hungary uh, than they do in uh, America. You see different footwear is a dead giveaway in a lot of these places. Just weird things. They're way into soccer in a lot of these places, and just, you know, they got a lot of these different little elements that if you get your eyes open, you know, very few people walking around in Carhartt. You know what I'm saying? It's just there's there's some different elements to the whole, whole thing. I I should be far more observant of myself, but you know, it's been pointed out that my entire shirt wardrobe is you know plaid. <laughs> just you know, just you know, like that's a Northeast thing, and I'm like I didn't even notice it. You know, is anyway. Point being. In certain cultures, you can recognize distinctly that which is, well, here's the deal. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dwell on this for a second because uh, history tells us that those Jews then began a process of, right, you know, this is a national uh, significance. We embroider blue into the hem of our robe, and we have the tassels on the hem of our robe. And it becomes this thing of, the, well, the, the tribe of Levi, uh, they develop their own insignia. And, and that, and oh, you see a Levite, and he's, you know, at least from the family of the priesthood, you know, tribe of Benjamin, might want to watch out for those guys, they're a little rowdy, you know, you, you run into different, 
tribes, and you can see lineage, and then the households, right? And, oh, well, you're actually from Judah, but you're also you know, in the line of David's household. And you could see in their embroidery, their family lineage, to the point that when Jesus shows up, right, you'll remember now he's rebuking the religious leaders and telling the people, do not be like them. And one of the statements that he gives is they broaden the borders of their garments, to be seen by men, right? It's supposed to be. It gets to the point where from like 50 feet out, you can see, oh, there's a Levite. You know, ooh, ah, everybody's supposed to be. And uh, you can guarantee that, that, you know, Jesus was probably wearing a Wrangler robe, you know what I'm saying? Some Walmart brand uh, humble thing. And this woman has it in her mind. Of I want to touch the hem of that rope. I need to get connected to the lineage that is Jesus Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the fulfillment of what God has promised to the nation of Israel. Look, there's a depth of uh, study to that woman's life and what she's doing that all of us should perhaps admire and emulate. Just the the most minor connection. I I need the most minor connection to Jesus I can get because it it can change my life. And and so many people aren't even willing to do that. Not not even not even pursue. Right? Think about it. she's pursuing in secret to touch Jesus secretly because she's not even supposed to be in this crowd according to Levitical law. She has the issuance of blood that makes her unclean. She should not be amongst them. She's not allowed to sit on anyone else's belongings. She can't touch other people. She's she's in a place where, here's another thing, you guys. The religious order of the day had developed it to a place where it wasn't like a, a an obscure teaching. It was the most dominant teaching that if you were a woman, and you were suffering from the unbroken experience of the menstrual cycle, as we're describing here, then you secretly were a completely immoral woman, probably a a secretly sexually immoral woman that no one should have anything to do with. She's shunned on every level from her community, right? You You know who she's probably most shunned by, ladies? is the other women. Right? They they are probably vicious. They probably say terrible things. There's probably gossip circles where she is the focus of this whole thing. She probably prefers to leave town and you know do her shopping elsewhere, where she's not known, where she can sneak in and sneak out. And and she's not supposed to be in this crowd, and she's sneaking through the crowd, hoping somebody doesn't recognize her. She probably got that veil tight around her head. She's probably wearing a veil she rarely wears, keeping herself so, you know, if, if she has one that she's commonly recognized, one, don't wear that one. She's, she's doing this in stealth. Got to touch the hem of the robe. Think about how, in contrast, we, we don't go anywhere near that far. We, 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 we uh, you know, if it's an inconvenience to us, just, you know, I'm, I'm not really, you know, it's just so, to get up early is, you know, we got, we got all kinds of things about conditional stuff. We're so incredibly spoiled. As, as I pointed out last week, what my friend Aaron Dudley calls first world problems, you know, things that were, you know, when you actually, when you can actually, you might not even think about it, but when you can actually look through your finances and realize, Oh, I actually have a coffee budget, you know, hadn't thought of it that way, but I do, you know, I spend this much monthly on coffee, you know, maybe your coffee budget is zero, but, but your green tea budget is, you know, I don't know. Is that right? You know, you got something else, right? You know, and, and, and we are so spoiled this way that the effort this woman is going through put most of us to shame. 
So here she is. She's got to get through. She's got to touch uh, his clothes. Uh, I shall be made well. Boy, there's a lot of faith in this statement. I shall be made well. Um, you know, I, there are many healings I've experienced over uh, the years personally and seen uh, in other people's lives, big stuff, little stuff. The one that's the most memorable to me, uh, some of us, uh, if Kyle Roberts listens to this, he'll be so embarrassed. But uh, some of us know Kyle uh, real well, attends Calvary Chapel uh, in uh, Orrington. And uh, we were on a men's trip, uh, a men's conference. It was a weekend deal, and he had been suffering from a migraine all weekend. And uh, as we were leaving, we're packing up. We're outside in the parking lot putting our stuff, and we're going to leave Blueberry Mountain. We're about to leave. And you know, Kyle comes over and says, I feel like such a fool. I haven't asked once for prayer. We've been here all week. I haven't asked once for prayer. And you know, he says, I need to be anointed with oil and prayed over. And we quick search for, you know, get the olive oil. And we go hold it. And, and, then, and then they just, oh, we don't have any olive oil. So wait a minute. We, got, we have some 10W30 right here. Motor oil. And if you know Kyle, he's 158% motorhead. Okay, this guy is like, he's a truck builder extraordinaire. I said, no, this is appropriate. And he said, that will heal me. And we anointed him with oil, and we prayed over him, and we're all kind of laughing, like, you know, this foolish thing. And it was like 10 minutes later when he came back in and said, you know, you guys, we were all laughing and joking so much that I didn't even realize that as soon as we began to pray, that, that that was taking I have no headache. I've had it for you know almost four days now, blinding migraine headache. And, and we you know anoint me with oil and pray, and the Lord makes me well. You know, we sometimes think of of the the uh, you know sort of foolish. Uh, you know, I just could have touched the hem of his robe, and we kind of kind of was well, that's a little silly. And, and she says, "I will be healed." There's faith packed into uh, her experience that says, you know, the Lord is going to touch my heart, going to touch my life, going to make me well. Verse 29 says, immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? Now, remember verse 24. The crowd thronged him. (laughs) They're suffocating one another with getting to Jesus. Who touched me? Uh, I don't know. 158 people in the last two minutes? I don't, what do you mean who touched you? Okay, Who touched me with intent? Who, who was it that came to me looking for that connection? Listen, uh, I know what it's like to be in the mass of people hearing the sermon, and I'm glued on the message, and I know... Yeah, this might have application to other people in the room, but this message is specifically designed. Every syllable is specifically designed by God for me. I I know God is probably doing that for hundreds of other people in the room, right? He orchestrates things big. He's God. So I, I don't have some arrogance that's like, you know, everybody should just leave. All, you know, me and this pastor got, you know, sort of thing. But I, I know those occasions where the Lord has confronted me, where the Lord has, uh, you know, comforted me, where the Lord has assured me, you know, been there and I'm just blown away, moved to tears, right? A simple song of love we sang tonight. Uh, I was at uh, the Chesapeake Room at uh, the Sandy Cove Conference Center in Northeast Maryland in 1997, May of 1997. And uh, that I heard that song for the first time and 
what I was going through at the time, the Lord crushed me with that song. Just crushed me. And um, in a really, really good way. And, you know, the point being, this woman is, is reaching out to the Lord in such a way that that the Lord can recognize it. And here's, and here's what I want you to remember, right? We, the enemy portrays this image of our heavenly father like God is this rage-filled character who's just loaded for bear with, you know, pinpoint accurate lightning bolts, and he's just prowling around. And if you mess up, there's going to be a small grease stain where you just were in a wisp of cloud <laughs> rolling away where he just smoked you. So, but that's, you know, that's the impression you get from certain depictions of God that he, he is wanting. You understand that that's not within God's character at all. Not even within his character at all, right? Perfect example is uh, Jonah and the city of Nineveh. And Jonah is told by God, go to Nineveh, tell those people to repent or I'm going to destroy them. Jonah says, good, glad to know that, not going to Nineveh, heads the opposite direction, storm, throw them overboard, swallowed by fish, right? You may be aware that the people of Nineveh worshipped the fish god, Dagon, right? And a, a giant fish bleh, pukes Jonah up on the beach and Jonah, right, their, their god just swam up and puked out a prophet who comes out saying, you guys got 40 days and God's going to kill you all. Time to listen when your when your God pukes out a prophet who's telling you, right? And they do listen, and Jonah doesn't want them to listen. And he's got that little gourd, you know, described in the King James Bible as the broom tree that grows up, and his little half-digested head is getting all sunburned there in the Middle East sun, and the gourd's now giving him shade, and he's all happy about the shade because he's waiting for the fireworks display when Nineveh gets destroyed, and then his gourd dies, and what's he mad about? His gourd dying. Not the fact that the people are going to die. And that's where God confronts him and says, here you are more concerned about your sunburned little head and the death of a gourd than the fact that there are 180,000 children in that city who don't know their right hand from their left hand. They're so young. God wants to save. Right? Peter tells us we shouldn't be deceived by the long period of time God takes. Because that's his patience, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. God wants to. Uh, God watching the eye in the sky, right? The scripture tells us that God's eye does roam to and fro everywhere throughout the land, looking for those whose hearts are faithful, loyal towards him, that he might strongly support them. God is looking for the woman that would just want to touch the robe. For the person that would sit on the edge of their seat and listen to the sermon and say, this is for me. God is paying attention to that and he wants to pour back from the opposite direction. He wants to meet that desire with resource and cause growth and maturity and usefulness and fruitfulness, not just for himself, for that person. Right? God wants to heal, right? Have you ever fumbled around in the dark trying to plug your stupid cell phone in? You know, and you know where that outlet is and how it is. You, know, you flip it over and go, and you're just amazed when you find the and the thing lights up and I've made it. That's what this woman does. She connects and the power moves. Right? There's a bunch of people that are fumbling around right there trying to get something. And she makes the connection. She, she, she has planned on, I'm going to touch my master, and he's going to heal me, and she's healed. The willingness, the response. Who touched me? They looked around uh, to see her who had done this thing, but the woman fearing and trembling. Why? She's unclean. She's not supposed to be in the crowd, right? Don't, please do not point me out here. Do, do not tell everyone in this crowd that I'm in this crowd. This, this could literally mean, it could literally mean legal trouble for her. She's not supposed to be there. She's fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter. Remember back 
In verse 23, Jairus is saying, my little daughter. It's not the exact same term, but it's the, the same level of endearment, right? Daughter. Je Jesus reaches out to her emotionally and meets her in a place where she has not had this level of acceptance in at least 12 years. She's had nothing but even the people who love her are of the mindset of the religious order who are, if nothing else, out of self-preservation saying, I can't hang out with you. I want to keep my job. I want, I want to be able to go to synagogue. If people find out I was at your house, I'm going to be shunned by the community. You know, even even those, you know, who she previously considered friends, those friendships have all been tested by this. She's been left in a place of wreckage, and Jesus gives her that tone of total acceptance as the dear daughter. Daughter. You know, he's, he's responding and reaching out in such a way. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. I, I need to point out again, as much as I'm talking about the connection and the faith and her commitment to this, faith is not a power we wield. It's a power we can connect to, right? <clears throat> I always use the example, forgive me for my repetition, every single year in the state of Maine, we lose people. They literally die because they place their faith in the wrong thing. Faith, faith doesn't equal power. Life is not that, right? They go out on the ice believing wholeheartedly, this is going to handle me. This is going to handle my truck. This is going to handle my four-wheeler, my snowmobile. And they go through, and we lose them, right? But faith isn't your power, right? It's, it's the power of the one who can deliver to you. Uh, you've probably, you know, that example of, you know, electrical outlets, you've probably plugged into outlets that have no power. Isn't that a drag? Just, you know, nothing on this wall, nothing in this room. You know, all of these circuits are dead, disconnected. You've flipped switches and breakers and just not, there's nothing there. Plugging into the wrong thing, right? Our world is full of that. And it's unfortunate that the church is becoming corrupted by this. You know, people bringing Eastern mysticism into the church, bringing psychology into the church, telling people, you know, the power of meditation, the power of, you know, Reiki, the power. No, the power of Jesus Christ is what we are to connect to and what we're to point people to. You place your, your faith in the wrong thing. It will destroy you in the process. Word of faith movement, right? Rodney Howard Brown, Lakeland, Florida, that whole thing. They, they teach it as this is a power you can possess and you can wield. Don't say you're sick. If you say you're sick, you're going to get sick. That's negative confession. Say you're healthy. I just, sorry, I got 104 fever. I'm a little delirious. I've been throwing up all afternoon. I just, I think I'm sick. You know, I should go to the doctor. You're not sick. Don't say it. You know, say you're wealthy. I'm not wealthy. <laughs> you know, I'm ill-educated, ill-employed, wrong location. I live in Washington County, Maine. What do you, I mean, come on. I'm not wealthy. I can confess it. Oh, I want wealthy in the Lord. Sure, we can do all of those things, and those are absolutely true. But the power of positive confession, the power of negative confession, that doesn't work within the kingdom. That doesn't work inside what our master has taught us. We have access to the greatest power we could ever connect our faith to. Make sure that you're connecting your faith to the proper thing, and then trust him, right? We, we all need to understand, right? You know, here's the thought. It's so crazy. Paul's sweatbands are being stolen from him and his apron from work, you know, where he's got his tool pouches, where he's making tents, right? He's stitching massive tents together that, that people use as homes. The Bedouins there in the Middle East are using as homes, 
he's building tents. And, 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 and to this day, they usually, especially in the Grecian islands and that really hot Mediterranean area, they usually break. Uh, it, it depends on where you are, but they have tradition of you know anywhere from 11 to 1. They'll take one to three hours off in the afternoon. And it's siesta, just sleep, rest, find a shady spot, a cool drink, and do nothing. Come back to work and we'll work, you know, six, seven, eight o'clock tonight and, and get done. They break their work day up. Paul said, hey, everybody's taking off, lounging around. I'll take off from work, but I'll go preach, right? So he's working. He he, he takes off, remove his uh, handkerchief, his, his sweatband, his uh, apron, set it down. People are taking, they're stealing his sweatbands and his aprons, and they're taking them to the sick and laying on them, and those people are being made whole. They're being made well. They're being healed by, this guy has a physical problem that is so severe that as a Bedouin tent maker, he's saying it's it was like a tent stake driven through his body, which, which you know, their tent stakes were three foot long, either iron or wooden stakes that they drove into the ground to hold up a big tent. And he's saying that that his physical malady was so bad that it was like one of those tent straight stakes driven, impaled through his body, right? And he said that he had prayed three times that the Lord would remove it from him, and the Lord had said, my grace is sufficient for you. Here's a guy who's, you know, he's you know he's at home, like laying the handkerchief on himself, Right, like God heal me, you know what I'm saying? Please make me well. No, my grace is sufficient for you. The, the the false teachers of today would say, Oh, Paul didn't no, they wouldn't say it. They do say it. They literally teach falsely that Paul did not have a, enough faith. If Paul had just had enough faith, he's Paul has healed people and raised them from the dead, right? You know, you fall three stories and land on your head, and everybody goes, dude's dead. And they've confirmed, you're dead. You know, look at him. His head is not supposed to swivel around like that. That boy is dead. Paul goes down, resurrected from the dead, back up to the Bible study. Now, there's a thought right there. You know, and, uh, and he went all through the night. He taught all through the night. Uh, faith. It's not, it's not something we hold. It's not a power we control. You know, the Lord will give to you according to his will. And, and you, trust me, you can plug into all the dead outlets you want to. You know, Buddha, Muhammad, Hare Krishna, you know, just keep trying out all of the self-help, AA, NA, you know, Al-Anon. Just keep plugging. You know, you find Jesus. Whatever power you're going to receive is going to come through that outlet, that portal, that person. Having faith will compel you to go to the right thing. But then what that faith delivers to you is up to the one who has the power. We, should, we shouldn't mistake it as something we possess. You know, I'm not trying to diminish. Listen, hear me in this. I'm not trying to diminish you're seeking this. I'm trying to encourage you with, if you've plugged into that over and over and over again, and you haven't received what you thought you were going to receive, do not write it off as, well, there is no power there. No, no. The, the Lord, right, <clears throat> the Lord very much teaches us, think about the nation of Israel. If you feel like I'm chasing a rabbit trail, I, I am. So, you know, follow me in this, okay? The nation of Israel comes out of their captivity. How completely stunning does it have to be to see walls of water on either side stood up congealed? You know, that the scripture itself says that they congealed, the water congealed. You, there, was, there were millions of people in that. You know that there were little kids walking along like, what in the world? Johnny, get your fingers out of that. You know, I just... It, Dry ground, right? Food falls from the sky. Just go out and collect it and eat it. All you need is a tennis racket because the quails come in right at batter box height. Just knock them out of the air. 
Go out, pick them up off the ground, just wring their neck and have dinner. God is providing, providing, providing. Oh, well, 40 years later, when you cross the Jordan River, and you've got to be a skilled warrior, and you've got to be walking in faith and obedient to the Lord, and literally plunge your sword through your enemies, you can be asking yourself, is this the same faith? Those guys walked. Shouldn't we just be able to walk through this problem? So shouldn't the city just separate in front of us? And we have great victory. Right? Maturity actually brings us to the place of, it isn't that faith has died, right? God has shown us, I'm capable of parting the sea. But you also need to be capable of walking moment to moment in this faith. So many people get to the point where the Lord is now saying, okay, kid, now let's stand up. Let's walk. Let's go conquer some things. And, and we flop down. Isn't that great when you, you, you got some kid that doesn't want to walk any further and they're laying on the pavement making a scene, ah, you know, screaming their head off. And, you, and, you, and really what you want to do is just drag them. But probably you'd get reported and it's socially unacceptable and just or just flop them there and leave, get in the car and drive away. One of my daughters did that when I was in my 20s. So I threw myself on the ground in the grocery store and started making the same fit. She did. Bang, she was right on her feet, and I was right on my feet. And she starts to go down, and I start to go down. And uh, she's like, okay, I got it. We're good. <laughs> Nothing to do with the text. But anyway, point being, as we grow, as we learn, Faith does change. God doesn't change. His power is the same. He can still part the Red Sea. Right? But, but there becomes that personal responsibility of living in that faith and walking in the faith. And we, like children, throw ourselves in the ground and we're screaming, just make it fall from the sky. And God is saying, get up and go to work and punch the time clock. I've given you the strength for this. There's people on that job site that need to hear what's going to come out of your mouth. Yes, man is wonderful. And that was appropriate for a certain time in your life. And manna will always be available. I'm not going to let you starve to death. That's what that lesson taught you, was I'm not going to let you starve to death. I'll crack the rock open every time you need a drink, and we will give you the water. But right now, I need you to get up and go over to the sink and fill the glass. The, the Lord wants our faith to grow, our maturity, and our trust. It's wonderful when we can feel it, right? When the power is just so, wow, this is awesome. I am definitely plugged in. Guess what? When you're not feeling it, God is just as powerful. You say, well, what's going on in the moment where I don't feel it? That's exactly what God wants you to experience. That's where faith really kicks in. When you can say to somebody, as you are struggling, no, God is still good. I, I know his faithfulness. Do, do I understand this thing I'm in the midst of? No, not at all. I've got a brief glimpse of a few little things involved in it, but I don't understand this. God's going to show me, right? How in the world does Job go through what he went through and, and say, yeah, oh, no, I understand completely why God would kill all of my children and all of my flocks and destroy my home and send me this beautiful wife who's just, well, you know, <laughs> why don't you curse God and die? You know, I just, you know, I, in the moment, he's got certain understandings. But what was Job's statement, right, in the end? That though he slay me, yet will I praise him, Right. So here, you know, this, this woman, she's had this uh, touch and, you know, had this healing uh, daughter, that affectionate term, your faith has made you well, go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Uh, these naysayers are always around. They're always around. 
you know they they you know they're well-meaning maybe even Christians and uh, you know you can just very politely say hey thanks for nothing you know and move on because some people listen <clears throat> remember Peter Jesus you know who do men say oh Elijah you know one of the prophets and John the Baptist and who do you say I am? you're the Christ ah oh, see flesh and blood that hasn't shown you that the Holy Spirit you know basically good job and then moments later get behind me Satan you know I, I have experienced Christians being the mouthpiece of the devil people you know and love and even respect walk up to you and say things where you just wish it were appropriate to slap their face right off their head yes they, they don't even know right have you ever had a day where you're in the flesh I suspect we all have and we've said the wrong things and we don't even realize it you gotta you gotta learn to trust God you gotta learn to trust him and who he is and what he's doing don't trouble the teacher she's already dead as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken he said to the ruler of the synagogue do not be afraid only believe listen when Jesus says that to you okay you're still gonna be afraid you're still gonna be afraid but you're going to be able to hang on. When Jesus has actually said that to you, you're going to be able to hang on. Uh, you know, this, uh, uh, you know, I guess illustrative point, uh, I built towers for years, and people would say to me, well, I guess you're not afraid of heights. Well, trust me, I've seen what it can do, and I have, I have a, I'll say it straight out, I have a fear of heights. But I, I also trust what I'm doing and trust the equipment and you know I have a faith in the process you know when you're 675 feet off the ground on a mountain that's 1286 feet in elevation the whole world underneath you looks really small really small and you trust your climbing harness you trust you put your faith in the things that you should put your faith in Jesus Christ tells you you can trust me then guess what you can trust him. You can hold on to him. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John. Uh, see, Jesus is clicky too. Consider that, right? He does look at a thronging crowd and choose 12 people. You know that there were those people in the crowd. This is a click. This is. You know who you click with? The people you hang out with. Right, we were talking tonight. Uh, forgive me for putting you guys on the spot. We started this church in Debbie and Conger Murray's living room, you know, on Needles Eye Road, that house we were uh, talking about. You know, there's a connection. Mark and Cheryl were at that first Bible study. You know, there's a connection. Oliver and I have been right in the trenches. Uh, you know, of ministry. You know, uh, Gerald and Susan. You know, connections, connections, connections. This is my mom. I mean, who am I closer to? Okay, we, we the enemy will whisper in your ear, right, and say, "See, it's clicky. <laughs> See, you know he's got his special friends, and you're not one of them. <laughs> Hang out, you know. You'll get friends, and we'll get become friends. And the body of Christ, our enemy wants to divide everywhere he can." Just insert between this group and that group. And you know what? Maybe if you hung out with those people that are so clicked together, you might even discover, I don't want to hang out with those guys. They all do things I'm not into. You know? None of them likes Rubik's Cubes at all. I don't know. I'm just throwing stuff out there. He takes Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult, a big you know, melee, sort of a, you know, mosh pit going on. And those who wept and wailed loudly, uh, they actually required in this community that uh, if, if you were even a homeowner, you had to have professional mourners at your funeral. You had to have at least one. Uh, and it, it's kind of strange, but it, it actually, it set the, the mood for the entire community. You hear someone wailing down the road, you brought the kids inside. You just put the Frisbee away. Get in the house. 
somebody has just died in our neighborhood. You know, joy's over. <laughs> we're, we're, we're deflating the bounce house. There's no more fun. Okay. And so, so this, this is tradition. It's, it's what they're doing. They're all wailing and crying. The tumult, they wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. <clears throat> I'll address soul sleep right here. Okay. Um, there is a false teaching inside fringe areas of Christianity and cults that say when we die, our soul simply falls asleep inside our body and remains in our body. Okay. That's a false teaching. The scripture continuously makes addresses to that very specifically, in particular in the Old Testament, when the prophet raises the child back to life, the scripture tells us that his spirit came back to his body, Okay, meaning the spirit had left his body. Paul tells us to be absent from the flesh is to be present with the Lord. We could go on at length. I'll just say flatly that the teaching that your soul falls asleep and stays inside your body until resurrection is false. You, you go into eternity uh, right now. Uh, Luke 16 very specifically gives us, Jesus gives us very specific outlines of the rich man who dies, goes to hell, and uh, then Lazarus who goes into the place of paradise or Abraham's bosom. So uh, don't be confused by that if you've hung out with Jehovah's Witnesses or others. You shouldn't be hanging out with Jehovah's Witnesses. They're not Christian. They are a cult. Uh, but, um, you know, soul sleep is not something that the scripture teaches at all. And they ridiculed him. And when, so, you know, you know how sincere mourners are when they go from wailing and screaming and crying to mocking, you know, laughing and saying terrible things about you. They ridiculed him. And when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Listen, moms, if your little girl has passed away, you've been in that room and you've laid on her and you've kissed her and you've mourned over her and you've held her hand and imagine the depth of pain and the depth of confirmation you've put yourself through that that little girl is gone. This, this this woman is at a level of despair that's undescribable. The grief, you know. Older children, you know. Little girl, 12. Rambunctious, noisy chatterbox, 12, is now dead. Heaviest of circumstances, beyond imagination to consider uh, what is going on? Then he took the child by the hand and said, Talithia Kumai, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that something should be given to her to eat. Three resurrections in the scripture, in the New Testament, that we see. And each time Jesus wants to make sure that there's not a big deal about it, except when they come to Lazarus. Okay, When Lazarus is resurrected, uh, something that's not commonly known is that the Jews, even to this day, much less significantly today, but definitely in the day, have a teaching that says resurrection is, if it's going to occur, is most likely within the first three days. Because within the first three days, this is what they teach, it's not scriptural, I'm not saying it's accurate at all, that the spirit of the person remains in the presence of the body for three days, looking for an opportunity to re-enter the body and be reanimated, resurrected. 
So now consider when they come to Jesus and say, the one whom you love, Lazarus, is sick. And he says, okay, then we should stay here longer. Because Jesus needs to get there after four days have passed. We've read that you know over and over again and maybe never like why why four days? What is the deal? Right? They even make the statement by now he stinketh. Okay? The body goes through rigor mortis and then it loosens. Three days in, all of the organs, the eyes have collapsed. All of the organs have collapsed. The entire back of the body is deep blue, approaching black. The top of the body is light pale yellow. Right? All of the joints and ligaments have all let go. Nothing is in the way. That should. I'm not, I mean, if you know someone's passed away, I'm not trying to create a graphic image for you. What I'm trying to say is that the possibilities of resurrection are gone. This man is in a firm state of decomposition. And Jesus makes that statement, right? Lazarus, come forth. It may be humor, but I partly agree with the fact, the humor of saying Jesus had to say Lazarus specifically come forth. Because if he had simply said to a graveyard full of dead people, come forth. Everybody would have gotten up. Why? Because the Prince of Life is saying, come forth. Okay. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, right? John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. I make, it's my personal belief. I, I'm not saying it's doctrinal or biblical. My personal belief is Jesus is weeping because he's bringing Lazarus back from paradise. Right? If I've been through whatever torment I've been through and I've exited this world and I'm in the presence of the Lord and you guys are praying that I come back here, not going to be happy, right? Think about it. Good news, Lazarus. We've resurrected you. You might want to watch out for those guys right over there because they've just plotted to put you to death. So, so not only do you have to come back to the misery of this world, but there's a group of people that are going to be actively trying to kill you. That would make me cry if you've made it into paradise. Jesus here saying, I don't want the world to know about this, is because right they've thronged him to the point where no one can breathe in the crowd. And what they want to do is make him Messiah. And he's continuously saying, we can't do that. Because it's not on my timeline. The prophet Daniel was told from the order to restore and rebuild the temple that the coming of the Messiah would be 173,880 days. And we're not there yet. March 14th, 445 BC, Arxerxes gave the order. And on April 632 AD, I'm going to get on the colt of a donkey and I'm going to ride into this city. And it's going to be exactly 173,880 days from the order to restore and rebuild to the day I ride in here. So don't try to make me Messiah yet. Don't worry. It's not going to last long. The crowd is fickle. They'll put their clothes down on the street and cut down palm branches and create, you know, Palm Sunday where they welcome me as their Messiah. And a week later, they'll kill me. He understands the plan. Not just to add all of these little points. Keep this in mind. When you're praying for the miraculous to be done in your life. And the Lord is saying, let's keep this between us. Let's not do that right now. Let's wait for these circumstances. That doesn't make God any less trustworthy. Right? He accomplishes his will in his time scale. And, and it may not even line up with our will at all. Right? That whole thing of Paul being told, my grace is sufficient for you, right? The subtitle there was God telling Paul, you have more revelation. One third of the New Testament written by Paul. You have more revelation than anyone else has experienced. And I know you. You would be a very prideful man and very full of yourself. You're going to suffer this malady to a point where you will constantly be 
being humbled by, right? You can heal other people. Why can't you heal yourself, Paul? You know, you can do this. Why can't you do that? This happens. You just, oh, you're some great minister you are, right? History tells us that Paul was very short in stature. Okay. If you're being called very short amongst one of the shortest demographics in the world, right? The Jewish people, and you're being called short for being Jewish, you're probably under five feet tall. He was described as very short, right? Very poor vision, very frail, bowed legs, knob knees. This, this is history. Spoke with a high-pitched, squeaky voice. Boy, that'd be a pleasant thing to go experience, right? And that's how the church at Corinth treated him. They spoke ill of him, right? Our Christian doctrine is largely, our New Testament Christian doctrine is largely built upon everything Paul has taught us. You know, the teachings of Jesus, obviously, certainly, but he expounds on them and gives us the full understanding, especially as Gentiles, within that. And, and God said, no, we're, we're going to humble you with a tremendous malady so you don't get a swelled head. I think God knows me really well, too, and knows that I need to be kept in similar state. You know, not you guys. I know you all tremendously mature and don't struggle with such things, but myself. So don't get discouraged. Don't get discouraged, right? You're connected to the proper faith. You're growing. You're walking with the Lord. Let him continue to work and teach and do what he wants to do. Don't look at unanswered things. Don't look at circumstances and feel like, nah, there's a total failure here somewhere. This isn't, this isn't where it should be. Let the Lord bless you and use you. Amen? Amen. All right, let's stand and we'll pray. I've got notes all the way through chapter 6 if you want to spend the rest of the night and fall out the window like Eutychus. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your work in our lives and pray that you would continue to touch each one of our hearts and cause what you want to have happen in each of our lives. Lord, we want to be useful to you and we want to be fruitful to you. So we pray that you would orchestrate circumstances, big ones and small ones, that we could minister, that we could open our mouths, that we could share with the world, that we could see your kingdom come and your will being done in us and through us and by us. I want to see people know you. I want to see the world submitted to you. To whatever degree we're a part of that. Please use us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.